Father, thank you that you say your word will be accompanied by power, the Holy Spirit, and conviction, as Paul wrote. And I pray that that would be a reality for us this morning, I as I bring it, and all of us as we receive it. May your word be accompanied with power to apply it to our lives, your Holy Spirit to lead us in that application, and conviction in what we're hearing, that it is your perfect Uh, inspired word. I ask that you would just bless this time together and it would just be another form of our worship as we transition to hearing your scriptures uh, being preached. Amen. Uh, So there's no particular passage of scripture I'm going to speak on. Instead, I'm just going to look at a theme and a question. The question being, or rather the statement being, why I need the church. Why I need all of you Uh, And may I suggest why you need everyone else that's made up of this local church and of the church the whole world uh, over. I've been in lots of different kinds of churches. I was born and bred in a church. My dad has been a church leader since he was about uh, 22. He got saved at 21 in Swansea, uh, got trained up in church leadership and has been a leader in the church ever since. And he's about in his 80s now, so he's going strong. But we have been in different kinds of churches. So I was uh, brought up in the classic old, dusty Welsh chapels. I feel like I can say that because I am Welsh, so I can kind of get away with reminiscing on those very strange experiences where half the hymns were in English and the other half were in Welsh. So I was just trying to say some gobbledygook because I don't know Welsh. I know I'm Welsh, but I don't know Welsh. So we're singing half of the hymns in in Welsh, and then after the service, we go into the minor hall where we all enjoy some lovely Welsh cowl, which is like some soup that we all used to just enjoy as Welsh people. That's all we ever ate, just cowl. Um, So I've been brought up in those types of churches. Uh, Then I've been brought up in churches that perhaps are a bit more slick, a bit more professional, where like the pastor would come down the aisle and he'd have about several different bodyguards with earpieces as he's going to the front row. That was weird as well, but that was another expression of church I went to. Uh, And then I've just been to other churches uh, outside of this country as well, where they were like literally a brick hut in the middle of a field, in the middle of a ghetto really, one in particular I remember in America, where a uh, woman would come in uh, and joined by her partner, <laughs> and the partner, when we used to do visits to their homes, he would literally just come out, of the, uh, come out of the kitchen, having just snorted some cocaine, and he was part of the church, and he was journeying with us, and just totally different experiences, totally different contexts that make up the church, but in all these different expressions, in all these different contexts, I need that same church. You need that same church. We're all different. We're all unique. We all have various expressions. But all of us need one another at the end of the day. It's no matter how different we are, no matter how um, unalike we might be, we all need each other if we are part of the church. So I just want to unpack two reasons this morning. And there are a myriad of reasons why I need the church. But I want to unpack two of them. But before we go into that, I just want to do a very quick reminder as to what the church is, because sometimes we can get so used to perhaps what we do as the church, our different activities, our different groups, that sometimes we might forget the actual purpose of the church, the identity of who we are. So just a few 
different reminders of what the church is. We are going to be doing a little bit of flicking through the Bible, but the text will appear on the screen. If you do have your Bibles, though, feel free just to join me, because we're going to be flicking by quite a bit of verses. So, the first one, (coughs) the first reason, oh, sorry, the first identification of what a church is, is that the church is a people, not a property. The church is a people, it's not a property. If you read through more or less all of the epistles in the New Testament, so those are the letters that several different apostles wrote to different churches in different cities, in different regions, at the start of the letters, the apostle will always tend to say, uh, I'm writing to the church in this region. He's not addressing it to whatever the Grecian version of a postal address would have been those days. He's sending it with someone to take it to the people that meet in that particular area. It could have been Ephesus, it could have been Corinth, it could have been Galatia, but it was always to a people group, not a building address. But then if you read at the end of the epistles as well, a lot of the time, the writer will say, and please greet, or please bless, or please welcome hospitably the church that gathers in so-and-so's house. So it's always the people, it's never the building. And I think about the granary building that we're currently pursuing at the moment. Praise be to God, we've bought it and we're doing the work on it. Uh, But the building will never in and of itself be Hope Church. People might look at it and people might refer to it and people might put on perhaps some more official documentation, Hope Church building, but the building is the granary building and it's us, Hope Church, that gather in that property. It's the people that meet there and it's us then that do our different activities, that have our different groups, that have our different programs, that are doing life together that meet in the brick and the mortar. That's the granary, that's the building, but it's the church that does the work in and through that building. It's a resource. So the church is a people, it's not a property, number one. Number two as well, and there is a passage of scripture, our first one, it's the church is a saved people, not a social club. So if we just go to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it's chapter two, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So it's that last verse. In him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So Paul's talking or writing to the church at Ephesus, and he's saying, you are a people 
in which the very spirit of God dwells in. You as the church individually, so when we go home independently, we have the spirit of God within us. Jesus and the Father have deposited the spirit. He indwells us. If you profess uh, with your tongue and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that means the Holy Spirit is in you because no one sincerely can say Jesus is Lord without the spirit which is another passage of scripture Paul writes. So if we've received the Spirit, if we have Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that means we are saved. And as the church, we're a saved people. That doesn't mean everyone who might be part of us or with us is, but that does mean we're all on a journey together. That does mean that we're all working together and living together and doing life together. But the true church at the very core are those of us who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior and have that bold and free access to him. It's not a social club. Although we're sociable, although we're friends, we're family, we're brothers and sisters. I like what uh, Richard has said in the past, uh, that the church isn't a glorified rotary club. Rotary clubs are brilliant. They do good works, just like we're called to do good works. They're, they're, uh, they help people. They provide aids. They do humanitarian deeds, whatever it might be. They're a blessing to every society where there is a group and a presence of the Rotary Club or any other group of people that do that. But we're different. We have the Spirit of God in us. We have meaning and purpose. What we do and who we are as the church is of eternal significance. It's of everlasting value. We've got something to give that's better than just perhaps going door to door and and doing good deeds. We give good deeds because we've got a foundation of salvation and we want people's lives to be transformed. So a church is a saved people, not just a social club, although we enjoy fellowship and friendship with each other. So, the church is a property, a, the church is a people, not a property. The church is a saved people, not a social club. The third one, the church is a saved people proclaiming Christ, not just having a holy huddle. So, passage of scripture for this one, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 to 29. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 to 21, rather. Yeah, 20 to 21. So, again, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, to the saved people in Corinth. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That first verse, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. The church is a saved people proclaiming Christ not having a holy huddle. Sometimes the world might think of us like that. Those people who uh, don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior and aren't a part of a church, they might think, oh, the church, that's just, again, another social group where they think they might be holier than thou. They think, oh, they're the righteous few, the Bible bashers. They're the ones who think they're better than everyone else, which just is not the case at all if you're not a believer here today. 
and not part of a church. We're all in the same boat. The only difference is Jesus has made a difference in us. But we've got a calling on us as the church to share Jesus, to reflect him, to imitate him to our neighbors, to our friends, to our co-workers, to the city of Worcester. We've got a mandate on our lives individually, but uniquely as the gathered church to reflect and imitate Jesus. And sometimes we might not realize that all the groups that we do or all the activities we're a part of at the very core, don't they or shouldn't they have that end goal at the end of the day? I think of, for example, um, Sunday night football. An opportunity, yes, to get fit and healthy, yes, to have fun, yes, to get some fresh air, yes, to meet with our friends, but actually, why not an opportunity for those who might not know Jesus, and I know there are people that go there that don't, to see those guys that go there, how they live their life, how they talk to each other, how they behave towards one another, how they behave to um, people who don't know Jesus, how they respond when they don't get a goal, and it's very frustrating, I know, on the pitch. That's a witness. You could call it small. It doesn't matter. It's of eternal significance because you're doing what you're called to do in that context. Or I think of the prayer gazebo that's been going on on Sunday afternoons outside the granary building. A bit more explicit, perhaps, but an opportunity to put up a gazebo and passers-by, pedestrians, just if they want to, be asked, can we pray for you about something? Or those who might not want to do that, just pray there in public and the public see us praying for our city, for our building, for the people that make up our city with the end goal of perhaps, God willing by his grace, questions being asked, people being persuaded, people coming along to hear uh, the good news. And then also I think of small groups. Probably one of maybe the less likely things we think of having or being ambassadors so publicly, but when we get together a small group, yeah, we're receiving, we're hearing God's words, perhaps we're singing in worship, perhaps we're using our gifts to encourage and to build each other up, but it's always with the point of going back out to our lives, going back to our families, going back to our offices, going back to our neighborhoods, so that we can then share Jesus in some way. Again, whether that's how we live our lives, or what we say when God opens the opportunity. We get built up so that we can get sent back out again. Again, So all the activities we're a part of, all the groups that get started up here, it's for that goal of not being a holy huddle, not thinking we're better than other people or allowing the world to think we're just uh, the holy huddlers, but actually it's so that we can share the good news of Jesus with the world and see them. So The church is a people, not a property. The church is a saved people, not a social club. The church is a saved people proclaiming Christ and not having a holy huddle. The last one, the church is a saved people proclaiming Christ for God's glory and not man's gain. So let's go to Ephesians again. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1, 11 to 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 to 14. Paul wrote, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. 
And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of, of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, you and me, to the praise of his glory. Paul says it twice. It's all to the praise of God's glory. We're predestined, we're sealed, we're, we're saved when we hear the gospel. We believe. Why? Ultimately, end goal, for the praise of God's glory, so that he gets all the honor, he gets all the majesty, he gets all the worship that he's worthy of because he's God and he is worthy of that. So the church is a saved people proclaiming Christ for God's glory and not man's gain. We want God's praise, not our position elevated. We want God's majesty, not more money to line our pockets. Although regarding the building, money is a good thing. God uses it, so that's fine. We want God's honor, not a greater status in life. And we want God's glory, not just our gain. Although we know God is a good father who wants to bless us and enrich our lives It's all with the purpose that actually we give it back to him so that he can get the glory. So very quickly, there's so much more that you can define the church as. But I just wanted to highlight those four things because they're just the basic core. If I was to pick a simple definition of what the church definitely is, it's the fact that we are a saved people proclaiming Christ for God's glory. We're a saved people proclaiming Christ for God's glory. So why do I need that kind of church? Why do I need you? Why do you need me? Although you might not think it. Why do I need the church globally, the world over? So I said there were two reasons of which there's just a plethora of reasons you could give for why we need each other. But I'm just going to give two. Um, If you read any of the epistles, so the letters that the apostles wrote, the letters, If you read any of them, I guarantee you, you will quickly see two big themes, two threads that go throughout all of the letters. And it's the fact that the church is called to be united and the church is called to be encouraging. I've got a new habit that I'm going through at the moment, which is I try and read a New Testament letter once a week. Give it a go. They're actually very short. Like some of them are probably only three, four, five chapters. Uh, You can sit down. I don't don't read any commentary with it. I don't read any study notes. I'm just reading the chapters and that's it. I'm not getting bogged down in what does that word mean or what's that context. I'm just going to read it and allow the Spirit to speak to me as he will. If you do it that way, you can actually get through it very quickly. But what's also really good about doing that is when you read something like as an overview you actually see the big things stick out of you, uh, stick out to you, and you can't help but notice the main drive that the writer's talking about. I guarantee you, if you read all, if, uh, some, if not all, of the letters of the apostles, you will see that it's a constant call for each church, no matter where they are, Corinth, Ephesus, Galatia, it's a constant call, a plea, be united, be encouraging to one another. So I just want to look at these two really briefly. There are pictures in the church that 
they tend to come, one comes from Paul and one comes from Peter, two apostles in the New Testament church. There's, there's a couple of pictures that they give to help, to help us as the church understand who we are and what we are. I just want to share those two pictures with you very, uh, very quickly. Most of you will be familiar with them. Uh, the first one is, I need the church like a hand needs a foot. And you guys will know exactly the verses I'm probably thinking about when I talk about that. I need the church like my hand needs my foot. I'm going to be very honest with you, and it's embarrassing, and I ran my sermon with Kerry just to check, is it okay, Kerry? Are we good? And she's like, it's fine, it's okay. It wasn't that long ago that I broke both my hands at the same time. Some of you might be aware of that. Uh, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't um, no way to break your hand is a good way, but this was an embarrassing way because Kerry and I lived in a home where we didn't have the best neighbors and they were quite loud, quite disturbing, not very pleasant. I persevered for three years. I don't know how I did that by God's grace, but one time I came home from being out with my friends quite late at night, about 11.30, maybe 12, came into the bedroom and Kerry said, the neighbors have been just crazy all night. I mean, it's been awful. I haven't been able to get to sleep. And I was like, okay, fine. We'll just persevere through it. So I go to bed, try to get some sleep. The neighbors' voices escalate. It gets a bit crazier. I get a bit crazier. Uh, and then, unfortunately, and I have repented of this, so don't worry, uh, I may have slightly snapped, and I may have punched the wall a couple of times, uh, ending up breaking both of my hands. So some of you guys might remember because I came in with like, maybe I wasn't quite, I wasn't that, I was like that for one day and then the next day it was full on cast both hands. I broke those, that one bone there, that one bone there, fractured, broken. So moral of the story is don't get on my bad side because there will be consequences. Uh, no, no. Repented of that, it was a learning curve, definite maturity, <laughs> but at the time, embarrassing. But I broke both my hands, came to church the next day, this was a Saturday morning, no, sat, uh, that was a Saturday evening, came to church the next day, did set up two broken hands, quite proud of that, went to work the next day on Monday, did work, I work on a, on a computer for the whole morning, but then it wasn't until my colleague said, those hands look like boxing mitts. <laughs> I think you need to go to the doctors. And I was like, oh yeah, I better go to the doctors. But as a result of that, anyone who has had anything broken, you realize that you need your body parts. You need your hands. You need your feet. Your hand cannot do what your foot can do. Your foot can't do what your hand can do. They're different and they're different for a reason. It's no good having one that doesn't work if you want to try and be as efficient and as effective in your life as you can. We need it. And Paul obviously makes this point. If you go to, again, 1 Corinthians, and it's chapter 12, verses 14. Now the body is made up of one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. 
If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, for that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is part of it. Yeah, let's finish there. So the church needs a hands like the church, sorry, the church needs a hands. I need the church like a hand needs a foot rather. The body is united by its parts so it's stronger. We are all different parts of the body with different gifts, with different skills, from different backgrounds, with different experiences. We all come together And we're stronger for it because we're different. And that way we're stronger and that way we're united as well. We're encouraged to care for each other. The hand cares for the mouth because the hand gives food to the mouth. The foot cares for the body because the feet take the body where it needs to go. Their ears care for the body because it makes the body aware of danger. We're all different with various parts, but that's, that's what unites us and that's what helps us encourage each other by caring uh, for each other as well. And the second picture is that I need the church like a brick needs a brick. So a brick by itself is never going to be anything great to look at. You don't go to London on tour to visit all the different sites. You don't walk up to Buckingham Brick. You walk up to Buckingham Palace. It's brick upon brick upon brick, and it's created into this great edifice, this majestic palace, and that's what makes people, but puts people in awe. That's what makes people glory in it. That's what makes people go, wow, like, that is amazing. Look at that architectural creation we don't go to look at a brick and it's the same with the church as well we all have individual value don't misunderstand me we all have individual worth we are loved uniquely and specially by the father but it's something special and it's something unique when we get together and we remember that we're a family we're a in that sense, we are a building, spiritually speaking. But let me, let, me, let me let the Apostle Peter say that. So I'll be taking his words out of my mouth. Go to First Peter. Yeah, First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. First Peter chapter 2, 4 to 5. I'll just let him speak. Peter said, As you come to him, The living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, that's Jesus, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, 
offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. We are being built into a spiritual house, that house where the spirit dwells in us as well. So like I said, we're not a property, we're not a building, we are a people, but spiritually speaking, we are a building. We're a building being built up into a holy temple. And what's the purpose of temples? Though we might not be as familiar with them in our day and age, the purpose of temples is that we worship God, is that a divine being, a deity is worshipped in that place. And we know him to be the father revealed through Jesus Christ. So we don't go to a temple brickwise, but we do come together and we are a spiritual temple and God's worshipped when we sing, God's worshipped when we hear from his words, God's worshipped when we enjoy communion together, God's worshipped as we interact with each other and share our gifts and bless one another and encourage each other. So we need each other like a brick needs another brick if it's going to be anything worth gazing at. The outside world, although they might not say it, when they see us at work doing God's work, sharing the good news, being a blessing to our world, there is something of awe. They look at us and they say, why, how, what is it about this church that draws us to it? And it is true because it's this, our faith is over 2,000 years old and we're still going strong because of the witness of the church and what we do. So the church, I need the church Uh, Like a hand needs a foot, I need the church like a brick needs a brick. Lastly, I need the church's example like I need Christ's example. Jesus is our example of what it means to be united and what it means to be encouragers as well. Let me read another verse. It'll be on the screen again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I said there'd be quite a lot of flicking. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 18 to 19. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Jesus united us to God the Father By reconciling us to him. How did he do that? Through the cross. Through the resurrection. Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, clothed with all power and authority. All of that was so that we could be given to God the Father and have a relationship with him. Jesus laid an example in his earthly life that we get to read about and be reminded of. That shows he united us to the Father. So when we remind ourselves of what Jesus has done in uniting us to God the Father through his death and resurrection, how much more so as we live our lives should we treat each other that way as well? How much more so should we try and pursue unity as a family? Where there's disunity, where there's a lack of peace perhaps because we're all human and this side of heaven we won't be perfect. There will be those things, but what can we do to bring peace, to bring unity into that situation, into that relationship? Look to Jesus' example. Read the, read the good news. Read the Gospels again and be reminded 
of the example Jesus laid and how he reconciled us to the Father. And let's do the same likewise. And then the last passage of Scripture, Hebrews, book of Hebrews, book of Hebrews, chapter 5. This one on encouragement, verses 14 to 16. Since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus encourages us by the empathy he shows to us. I preached about this a little while ago. Jesus hasn't gone through everything we've gone through specifically. He just hasn't. But he does understand. He's gone through strife. He's gone through problems. He's gone through difficulties. He's gone through pain and suffering, whatever it might be specifically be for you he felt it at the very core of what it is to suffer so he understands and he sympathizes with us so we look to Jesus and we remember that how much more so then can we empathize with each other as family and as brothers and sisters how much more can we say I don't understand what you're going through but I'm here for you like Jesus is constantly here for us we can reflect and imitate that So I need the church's example. I need your example like I need Jesus' example and to read his word and remember that so that we can be united and so that we can be encouraged uh, by one another as well. So just to finish then, it isn't always easy because we're different in a lot of ways. Like I said, we have different thoughts, different views, different opinions, different backgrounds, different experiences, whatever it might be. But it's our differences that unite us and encourage us. And I just want to read this. I couldn't be bothered to write it down in my notes because I've already written it down in my phone. But we need our differences. We're not all going to do the same thing in the same way as other people. And we should rejoice in that and not be jealous of each other, but just do what we're called to do. I'm just going to list these things. So we heard from Gordon recently about pursuing the prophetic which is excellent and what, is, and what we should all do. Paul says, don't despise prophecy, but eagerly desire it. However, if we're prophesying that we're going to hold this event or we're going to have that group come to the granary building or this is where we're going to go and we don't have practical people to put it in place, then those words are going to fall to the ground. We need both. If everyone starts getting up and prophesying, this is going to happen, we're going to go there, we're going to do this, but there's no practical people to administer that, or to organize it, it's not going to happen. So if that's you, take encouragement because you are part of the cogs that help these things happen and move forward. So the prophetic needs the practical. Bill, we heard from recently, at the start of, uh, at the, start of the new year, we've had a thrust about entering into the miraculous. Again, which all of us should eagerly desire and hope for. But the miraculous needs the mundane. We all live lives where we've got to set alarms. We all live lives where we've got to read our Bibles and it is not going well. And we're talking about not worshipping demon goats in the desert in the Old Testament. You know, we'll have that passage of scripture for that day and we're like, 
What's going on? We've got routine. We've got duties. We've got responsibilities. We've got, we've got babies. We've got husbands and wives. We've got friends we want to meet up with. We've got you know, CPD, career professional development, whatever. We've, we've all got these things that are just part of the routine of life and can be mundane. But that doesn't mean we don't pursue the miraculous. But what it also means is we need both. We need those who see it a lot. And we need those who are actually just chugging along, setting out the chairs on a Sunday morning, setting up the communion tables. We need both. The miraculous needs the mundane. We heard from Claire recently, and I am coming to an end. We heard from Claire recently about her amazing healing, which we are grateful to God for. We give glory to him, and we're so thankful. And Claire's living in that success. Others of us who have been healed are living in that success and are rejoicing in God. But the successful... I'm using that word successful because I like alliteration. The successful needs the suffering. Some of us won't see that, although we pray to God, we intercede for you as a family, and we constantly lift each, lift each other up. But actually, not only do we rejoice in God when we're successful, say if we are blessed and prospered or we are healed, but actually it's in our suffering, a lot of the time, if not most, where we're thrust into God's arms and we know him as comforter. We need both. We need to know him as our healer, but we also get to know him as our comforter when it doesn't go our way that we're expecting. So the successful needs those who suffer. Those who are serving far away on the front lines need those who are serving regularly on a Sunday and praying for their, from their homes. We love that um, Alex and Dima are going out to Egypt and being a support there. Richard goes out with Gordon and Jim to Uganda to support our friends Emmanuel. Uh, we know that the gardeners have been out to Egypt as well, and it's brilliant. They're on the front lines there. They're supporting. They're equipping church plants. They're seeing the persecution. For a lot of us, that won't happen, but we are no less than that. You are no less than that. We need each other. They won't be fruitful unless we're praying for them. They won't be fruitful unless we check in with them, unless we bless them financially, whatever it might be. We need each other. So we're all different. So let me just finish with these two questions. Where is there disunity that you could bring unity? Grab opportunities to bring peace to a relationship or a situation. Where's there disunity where you can bring unity and be a man and woman of peace in that situation? Say, let's get together. Let's not do this. Let's, let's, let's come back as friends. And then where is there discouragement that you could bring encouragement? Carry a presence with you into conversations or circumstances that seek to build people up, not beat people up. We want to build people up. We don't want to beat people up. So where's the disunity? Bring unity. Where there is discouragement, bring encouragement, because that is the will of God uh, for our lives. So we're going to transition now into, into communion.